QAnon loons caravan of crazy, psycho Morrison crashes at press club, how to vote checks won't solve aged care crisis, and the good news is on B-Bricks. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am joined by the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, and the human mother of puppies, Van Batam. <laughs> How are you, Van? Well, as you can see, um, I have a puppy on, on my lap. He is very cute. It is very cold, and I'm, I'm feeling particularly motherly towards this little hound at the moment. Look at him. Look he at his very cute. cute little face. He is very, very cute. <laughs> I love him. Well, you may not hear as much from Germanicus today because he does seem quite sleepy. I think he's trying to sleep away the cold. But then we've got lots to talk about we today. We do. We do. What a week it's been. It's been a big week. It has been a huge, huge week. And I want to start because I think it's most topical given your book, QAnon and On, and the book is going really well. The book is going really well. I found out the other day that there's a library that has it and it's got a waiting list that's 30 people long, and that makes me so excited because that means there are 30 people who are using their library, and libraries are great. If you... um, if you haven't bought a copy of the book or can't buy a copy of the book for whatever reason, it happens. It's all good. Can I just say, visit your local library. They will order it in for you. That's very exciting. But also, I am going to be at Adelaide Writers Week. I've got other writers festivals coming up around the country. There are rumours that I'll be in New South Wales. There are rumours that I'm going to be at various regional festivals in Victoria. But I'm Definitely at Adelaide uh, on March the 5th. So if you have a copy of QAnon and On and you want me to sign it and, you know, put a big love heart in your face in the dedication, that's totally fine. Um, but you can definitely come and see me there. I'm really excited. Adelaide's going to be really great. And, of course, it's incredibly topical at the moment because of the what I'm colourfully calling the QAnon caravan of crazy that has made its way to Canberra and for the last, certainly the last few days, they seem to have ramped up their their activity. I think they've been there over quite a lot of the summertime. Uh, in various guises, yeah. in various configurations. Yeah, so they're, like most things to do with the sort of conspiracy cult movement in Australia, they're taking their cues from overseas. Yeah. Like we know that. We know that about the, anti, the anti-lockdown the anti protests in Melbourne last year were part of an international coordination by a group based in Germany. Yeah. I doubt most of the people who were at those protests even knew that, which is really disturbing. Yeah. But the Australian Freedom Convoy Caravan, whatever they're calling it, random collection of words, they have taken inspiration from a convoy protest in Canada. Right. So in Canada, obviously, there's quite lucrative border crossings between Canada and the United States and various coronavirus provisions mean that you can't make that crossing unless you're vaccinated. Yep. And, of course, they're kicking off about it and they had a convoy to Ottawa, which is the capital. Yeah. And I just to put this in context, Justin Trudeau, been quite a handsome gentleman, which tends to particularly upset QAnon believers. Right. It is no coincidence that a lot of the people they hate the most are not unattractive human beings. 
things. Um, Justin Trudeau had the had his prime ministerial residence invited by a QAnon person um, not that long ago. I talk about it in my book, and he's he's quite the target. Anyway, they the Canadian uh, convoy to Ottawa mm. businesses refused to serve these people because they're unvaccinated yeah. and they are a public health risk. And this just really says everything about the morality of that particular movement. To get food, they raided homeless shelters. They went to homeless shelters and literally took food from the mouths of homeless people. And let's just put this in context. In Canada, where what's the season in Canada at the moment, Ben? It's freezing cold. Yeah. It's snow. Yes. Yes, it is, Ben. So during a Canadian winter, freedom protesters took food from homeless people at homeless shelters. Great. What what wonderful people they are. So um, the Australian convoy is copying the Canadian model because all of these people hang out together on the internet. You know, it's all it's it, there is no coincidence that people do similar things. Is it sort of is it sort of an irony, right? Like that these people bang on about global conspiracies, and yet. A part of a global part conspiracy. Of a global conspiracy. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, I believe yeah. there was some guy who these guys might be a lot more familiar with than they think, who once said something along the lines of always accuse your enemy of what you yourself are doing. Yeah. Yeah, there's rather a lot of that that's gone on. Yeah. So, yeah, so they've they've converged on Canberra. They had a small pile-up somewhere on the way. That on was the Pacific a, Highway, I saw. Yeah, a couple of utes who were part yeah. of the convoy. It's not a big convoy. But can I just say on that, like, it's hardly surprising. They were flying a giant flag out the back of a four-wheel drive, driving down the highway, and clearly the flag either came off and hit somebody's bonnet or got tangled up in some way, and then cars all just got piled in together. Like, these people have no regard for public safety. I mean... No, because the, the dead giveaway is that they are, of course, unvaccinated. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't really expect people who are unvaccinated to think that road rules or, or public health and safety is in any way important. As well, we know. In fact, reality is not hugely important to these people because, as you know, and as you and I have discussed to our mutual amusement, their target, of course, is Parliament House. Yeah. But they were demanding that the politicians come out and answer to their demands. Yeah. Which, of course, was not possible no. because the politicians don't live in Parliament House and over summer uh, at home in their electorates, which elect them to go to Canberra on sitting weeks to represent them. So they totally just... Yeah, so like, no one's there. Like there. it's oh, apart from like cleaners, oh, security and, staff, and Andrew Lee, who represents the state of Fenner. Like, <laughs> yeah, who, right. I, part of part of me, Andrew Lee. Some of you may be aware is a, a massive policy wonk. He's very representative of his electorate in mm, Canberra. Mm. Andrew Lee from the Labor Party, and just highly erudite, very well educated individual, Doctor Andrew Lee. Doctor Andrew Lee, yeah. And it would be literally hilarious to see these people petition him. That would, that would be a great moment in Australian political comedy. But they're doing things like they're outside the front of Parliament House. You remembered a particular speech. Well, I saw a speech today on Twitter that, that was from, I think, this, either from this morning or yesterday, where 
where a guy is getting up there and he is not wearing a mask and he's there's a few people around and they're all flying the red ensign, which has become the flag of the... Upside down. Upside down. Australia in distress. The red yeah. ensign is the red Australian flag. It's, it's by the, the merchant, merchant Navy. Navy. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, shout out to our comrades at the Maritime Union of Australia who have condemned their use of this flag, a flag where many Australian uh, seamen uh, died during the Second World War under this flag, by the way. But anyway... They're surrounded by this guy, and this guy is basically saying, if you're not wearing a mask and you get asked to wear a mask by a police officer, ask them how many pedophiles they've arrested in the last two years, because I haven't heard of any, and that's, you know, BS, and that's what they should be focused on, not arresting mothers in parks. And it, it's just like, hang on, you've gone from zero to a million in in literally the space of about three sentences there, mate, you know? But I just want everybody to be aware that this is all, this is QAnon stuff. Yeah. Obviously, when they talk about pedophiles, when they talk about the deep state, part of me was wondering, and I sort of need a bit of a break from hanging out with them online, yeah. as you know better than everybody, given the nightmares, um, when Ash Barty turned up playing her final in red shoes the other day, and red shoes. Oh. Oh, is yeah, something they yeah, latch on yeah, as a symbol. Yeah. I just thought, Jesus, no, not Ash Barty, please God. But we, we moved, we, I, I didn't dwell on it. But you see these little snippets of QAnon ideas. But it, they're really dangerous, these people. They are genuinely dangerous because reality doesn't touch them anymore. And people who can justify these insane extremist positions to themselves can justify anything. There was an extraordinary article uh, that appeared this week Um that Cam Smith, who mm. calls himself at Sexenheimer on Twitter, who I certainly recommend everybody follow. Follow him. Do not necessarily share some of the content, but certainly be aware of it because um, he posts things from the far right and that sort of community all the time. He's quite brilliant. And he posted this article about a woman from the Sovereign Citizens Movement, which is another sort of mm. faction of the, the generic loon octopus, a tentacle of the loon octopus. And Sovereign Citizens believe this sort of legal mumbo-jumbo nonsense garbage where they say that Australia is a, a legal fiction and that we were made a corporation and they essentially think that if they declare themselves sovereign that the law doesn't apply to them. Unfortunately, rather a long uh, legal, a series of legal defeats have proved to these people, or should have, that this is not in fact true. But the the, the one that Sexenheimer shared was this woman who had done some criming. Yeah, I can't actually remember the precise crime because the after the aftermath was so significant. The um, criming was done. Yeah, the criming was done that resulted in a police chase. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it was arrested after a police chase and has now failed to appear at two court appearances and has said that she was very traumatised by the police chase and therefore just couldn't go to court and relive it all. And it's like, yeah, that's that's not a thing. <laughs> like, if you have done some criming and the police are chasing you... yeah. Like, and you were told to appear to court, look, maybe there was a huge misunderstanding. Maybe there was. Yeah, yeah. But you don't get to say, I can't go because I'm traumatised. Sexenheimer made the point. He's like rather a, rather a precedent for the armed robber community there. Like, yeah, that's right. I did some criming, you chased me, it was traumatic, so I just can't, can't face a court. Can't for my, and I just, you I've know. I've been punished enough. It is just on 
the left, right, like on the left, there is a tradition. You go to the demo and you know the cops are going to thump you and they know that they're going to thump you and everybody knows where they stand. And you don't go to... There'll be a thumping. There'll be a thumping. And that's... And you're proving your point. You're proving how committed you are to whatever you're demonstrating. And I've been thumped by police all over the country for various reasons. And you know, like, you see it in one another's eyes and and you cop the thumping. And the, the copying the thumping is part of communicating to the broader community mm. that you are so committed to the cause mm. that mm. you will cop that thumping and you won't whinge or complain about it, but you will take the pain because that's that's the issue. Th- these people on the right, the Q-Loons, who are genuinely shocked that legal processes apply to them and genuinely shocked the cops will say, hey, why don't you put on a mask? I'm just like... Well, they have no sense of sacrifice, right? Like what you've just described is a, a willingness to sacrifice your own personal safety for the betterment of your cause, which you believe is in the common interest, right? Like that's that's where that framework comes from. What these people are prepared to do is sacrifice other people's outcomes and other people's safety for their own outcome. So it it's so perverse. Like, can I just I just want to bring it back to one of the things that they've been doing is raising money on GoFundMe. Right? Oh, this is amazing! So they've raised one hundred and sixty thousand dollars for one of these people to drive across the Nullarbor from WA to Canberra. Who's a doomsday prepper? <laughs> They're right. raising $160,000. That's a hell of a doomsday. Yeah, That's right? your champagne doomsday that he's preparing for, to- $160,000. What about Campbell's soup? I just find these people such absolute meringues. You know what I mean? It's like cop the thumping from the cops like an adult and pay your own way to bloody get there. Well, but they're just not going to do that. You know, they're just not going to do that. They don't understand how the rest of society works. They don't understand why they're not just allowed to do whatever they want, whenever they want, because they say they can. And and it's spilling into the mainstream so much more, even now. And I think a lot of people maybe thought this would start to go away after the Trump presidency ended. Of course, it hasn't. If anything, it's become at a whole nother level with COVID as well. And even just this week, just yesterday, they were protesting outside the National Press Club because, of course, Scott Morrison, Prime Minister of Australia for another seven minutes, uh, was giving his uh, press club address the week after Anthony Albanese gave his. And i got to say, the Morrison Press Club address van... It was an absolute train wreck. Yeah, look, it could have done with some loons for, inter- yeah. for entertainment purposes only. Like if the loons had have burst in, and I, I don't know if I dreamt this or if it was true. If somebody could check the journalist Josh Butler's feed, Josh from the from the Guardian, because I seem to recall that he had a photo of someone in an actual tinfoil hat outside the press club. But like I said, I may have dreamt it. I've had these people on my mind way too much, but. But a bit of disruption by loons demanding that the lizard people be arrested. I think Scott Morrison's belief in God would have strengthened had that happened because he looked pretty much abandoned by God yesterday. It, it really was. Uh, it really wasn't abandoned by God speech. It was so boring that at one point, Barnaby Joyce, Deputy Prime Minister, leader of the Nationals, you know, the right hand of uh, Scott Morrison was face palming so much, people thought he was passing out. Uh, 
Michelle Graham. I mean, that's not unreasonable, <laughs> yeah. given what we know about Barnaby. And there is wine normally served at lunch at the press club. But Michelle Grattan, veteran journalist. Veteran political journalist. Has seen it all, heard it all, looked like she was falling asleep. I don't know if she was or not. Extraordinary the photos, photo. I mean, if she wasn't falling asleep, she was literally bored into stasis. It was remarkable that in a room stacked with his own ministers, with their staff, and you and I have with spent big donors. You and I have spent a lot of time at the press club in our time. We have been involved in a number of those events. I have never seen a room so stacked at such a high level. Yeah. Like, that was essentially a cabinet meeting with serviettes. Yeah, that's right. And it was very surprising just the the level of, um, yeah, the invitation list mm, mm. was quite and, extraordinary. And look, and let's remember Parliament is not sitting. That's right. They had been roped in there. They so had been flown in from all over I the country. I love this, that the loons are outside Parliament House going, come out and meet us. And it's like they're... They're all at the press club, dudes. Yeah, like they're down the road. But it was the most horrendously boring speech, I have to say, and it was really a rerun of the same press conference he gave two or three weeks ago where he gave that kind of activity list as though he was the country's chief accountant. You know, we've bought this many masks. 140,000 units of schmear. It was just... It, it started, sort of opened with this this piece where you thought maybe he was going to take responsibility and it's been a tough summer. and There was a little bit of – there was a, a sense of it, like a foreshadowing of contrition. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it was kind of – it was kind of amazing. So he was like, you know, we've really – it's been really hard and people make mistakes and I've made mistakes. But the speech literally went to, yes, I understand a lot of people are blaming me, but – but and he said the words, but you've just got to tough it out. Yeah, like how you're blaming me because you're a bit weak, yeah. and when you stop blaming, like if you want to be strong, you just have to stop blaming me. Literally gaslighting the population. It's like no, no, you have screwed everything up. We are an island nation. We had the opportunity to save ourselves from coronavirus, and you didn't. You didn't do that. You're in charge. At the same time, at the same time, he literally said the actions of my government have saved 40,000 Australians. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the actions of my government have saved 40,000 Australian lives. But it was just it was just sort of extraordinary because he listed, you know, we had the fires. It's like, yes, which you totally mismanaged and went to Hawaii in the middle of, and we've had floods and we've had this, and it's like all of these things. He should have mentioned the mouse plague, which, by the way, he didn't manage at all. Yeah, that's right. All of these other disasters is almost Australia, if you're a believer, it's like God just might be trying to tell us something. He did use the word pestilence in his yeah, speech. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which was interesting. And, um, oh, it was terrible. It was just terrible. And so he lists all this, all these disasters. It's like, yes, and you also screwed that up. And he mentioned the, like, the community in aged care. It's like, yes, who you've abandoned small businesses. Yes, who the ridiculous letter rip policy has totally, totally stuffed around. Like all of these sectors that have mm. suffered because of his mismanagement and then turned it on us. But you're only blaming me because, you know, you've just got to tough it out and go through it. You've got to push through. You've yeah. just got to push through. Yeah. Oh, my God. We I rely on just- our values, he said. We rely on our values. And apparently Morrison's values 
is uh, it's everybody else's fault. Yeah, they're literally his values. Like, blamed literally everyone. He tried to throw the Therapeutic Goods Administration under the bus. Yeah, and he got pulled up on that in the questions. And, and he did. And Michael Pascoe wrote an article about it today saying the because thera- he, he said, oh, yes, well, we didn't get the rats because the Therapeutic Goods Administration didn't pass them. And, of course, Michael mm. Pascoe, who is a wonderful journalist mm. and who has been around a long time and whose years of niceties and politeness are fortunately far behind him. And he's got the statement from the TGA from, like, August last year saying, we are waiting from a signal from the government. Yeah. It was it was a remarkably boring speech in so many ways. And so infuriating at the same time. That's really difficult to pull off. Because it was also things like saying, you know, there are more Australians in work than ever before. Nothing makes me happier than to see young Nothing people. Nothing puts a greater smile on my face. Yeah, than to see young people in a job. And, you, and I'm going, this is the guy who a week ago was trying to put children in forklifts. How does he not understand that his disconnection from the reality of people is actually damaging him? Constantly coming back to these headline data points, this sort of, well, unemployment is the best it's ever been. And yeah, which Sally is Mc- statistically untrue because but, but 30 years of full employment sure, policy between but, 1945 and 1975. But Sally McManus makes the point, right, the leader of the trade union movement made the point, but hang on a minute, more people are in multiple jobs than ever before. More people have insecure work than ever before. Most of the jobs that you've created are casual and have no job security. And if we were actually at a point of full employment, that is people are not underemployed and everyone is fully utilised, then surely wages would be going up, but they're not. You know, all of these headline stats that he likes to try and use. More apprentices. It's like, hang on a minute. You've brought in more apprentices after you cut 140,000 apprentices. But he met an apprentice. That, yeah. was a, that was a favourite of me. He's met one apprentice. I met an apprentice the other day and I was like, well, that's amazing, Scott. That's incredible. I'm surprised they let you out of the compound for well, that long. The, the whole thing was really just bizarre. It was boring. It was bizarre. It was headline stats. It was basically all the things they that they teach you not to do when you're trying to win an argument, right? Don't just list off stats. Actually engage with people. Try and relate to their experience. Make what you're talking about relevant to them. You didn't do any of that. Of course, there were some announcements made, not many, given it was, you know, start of an election year. And even they were bizarre. You know, so he announced a new manufacturing plan and one... Oh, yeah, we're going to solve our problems with manufacturing. It's like, that's amazing. You've been in government for nine years. You have presided over one of the great collapses in manufacturing. You were part of the government that stopped Australian car manufacturing. Sorry, Ben. Sorry. Yeah, but my exactly right. The point was made by a union official on Twitter that if we'd had one new manufacturing job for every new manufacturing plan, then we'd actually had tens of thousands of manufacturing jobs. But we haven't had that. And now we're just making announcements for the sake of making announcements. You know, one of the other things that was announced yesterday, Van, which I know is close to your heart, as it is mine, was around universities and research. Oh, man. So we know universities didn't get JobKeeper. For some unexplained reason, universities were not provided the means to continue their operations. There have been 
absolutely shocking cuts in university departments, shed staff. It is an absolute disaster in the sector. We all know that. Mm. The theatre department at Chelsea University in Wagga I was working at last year has gone. Like, we do have these personal experiences of it. But the focus, according to Scott Morrison, is going to be on commercialisation. We're just not commercialising our research enough. Which I think is a fundamental misdirection, right? So in this speech, he says that our research, 95% of our research or some huge amount is classified as world-class. You know, the, the independent bodies that measure these things, that rank these things, say that our university research is world-class. In the same speech, a few sentences later, he says that our OECD commercialization rates are well below average. So... In the same speech where he says our researchers are world-class, he basically says our company executives don't get it, don't understand how to commercialise it, aren't really engaged, not interested in how to turn research into new products, new services, new ideas. And so what's the focus of the Morrison plan on research? It's to give more control of research to underperforming corporations and corporate executives and less independence to universities and researchers. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been rightly condemned by academics and like education groups because what inspires new products and what inspires innovation is actually academic freedom. Well, there's not a lot of academic freedom uh, in Australia as much as there should be, given the fact you have people at the the Prime Minister's friend, Stuart Robert, Mm. um, Pastor Stu, who has been personally intervening to knock off research grants for um, various projects that have, of course, been passed by all of the expert authorities that determine where research grants should yeah. go. So we have that. We know that staff losses mean a, a curtailment in research. We know that universities are cash-strapped and underfunded. But also now the solution to a problem that the government itself has created is just to corporatise and outsource the taxpayer-funded resource of universities to multinational corporate control. It's bizarre. It's you know, bizarre. So it's just more, more uh, of the government getting Australian taxpayers to subsidise supposedly, you know, entrepreneurial profit-making corporations, just like with JobKeeper, where it was our taxation revenue that plumped the pillows of some Austra- uh, some of Australia's richest businesses who didn't spend it on maintaining jobs but rather insulated their own bottom lines with it. And it, they're taking the same approach to the university sector. It's... You know, totally outrageous. It it shows this reversion to ideology that we've been talking about from Morrison that, you know, this 1920s-style policy prescriptions of just give corporations more money and they'll solve the problem. Look, I want to talk about the questions because as boring as the speech itself actually was, the questions section of of the National Press Club address was was really entertaining in the end. I, like, I love the fact that I missed it while it was happening. I was taking a meeting and I'd left this really boring, like, speech just going, oh, my God, I don't know how many more of these I can mm. take. And I came back and you were like, oh, my God, oh, my God. I was like, what has happened? Well, it went from it went from a kind of a mood, a fairly flat mood in the room, and you only really get this when you watch it, but you can see it's a sort of flat mood in the room. 
people are bored, people kind of are not expecting anything major. You know, certainly it wasn't a speech that closes a 12-point polling gap, right? And then the journalists basically lined up one after another to kick Scott Morrison. And I have to say, it was actually really beautiful to watch because because they actually took him to task. You know, he had – his speech was, as we've discussed, awful. Um, Laura Tingle kicked it off with a will you apologise for and then listed all of – not all of his crimes, but certainly a number of them. And he essentially refused – And the thing was, the room kind of giggled about that, right? They kind of giggled when Laura asked the question because they know, it's been well reported, that Morrison doesn't like Laura Tingle, won't go on the show, 7.30 report with her, all that sort of stuff. And so when he gave this kind of answer and she said, so you won't apologise, and he said, well, I feel I've given my answer to that, and there was a little chuckle, you got the impression, oh, this is going to be one of those. And then... It started. I reject the premise of the question. That's his line always, isn't it? But it started. You had News Court journos, Channel 9 journos, Guardian journos, all taking paint off the Prime Minister. And and it was everything from... And the one line that I really liked was the how-to-vote checks because, of course, and we'll talk a bit more about this, the announcement that he made earlier before the press club and reiterated at the press club, the up to $800 uh, up to bonus payments to workers in aged care. One of the journalists said, um, do you really believe that your how-to-vote checks will help you win the election? It was a question like that. It was really just an absolute corker. And... And it carried on. You know, Sky News, the reporter from Sky News asked him how much a litre of milk costs, uh, sorry, how much a loaf of bread, a litre of petrol and a rat test costs. And it's not even that he didn't know the answer. It's that he couldn't provide any kind of answer other than, you know, I'm not going to pretend to know. I'll leave that up to you to decide what that means. Oh, and that really was, I think, a hand grenade that he didn't. It was it was a hand grenade he was supposed to throw at the enemy that he actually threw at himself. Yeah. And the whole country watched him blow up. And, and this is the thing, right? Like, as you say, we've been involved in some of these things before and you know you're going to get that kind of question when you're giving, when you're talking about cost of living. How many people are in the Prime Minister's office? Like 300 employees yeah. or something and, insane. And and you could see there was a moment. He took a beat, he shuffled his papers, he answered the first part of the question, which wasn't about the prices, and then he started to panic because clearly he, he probably had like the price of a litre of milk rather than a loaf of bread and maybe he had, the, you know, some other thing as well. But they didn't have those specific things. And he just couldn't answer the question. He just didn't answer it. And now today, all day today, he's been out trying to spin the fact that he's not out of touch because he doesn't know the answer to this question. Stuart Robert has literally gone out today and said... I've got it. I will read it to you. It is too good. It is remarkable what Stuart Robert has said. It's one of the most sexist pieces of claptrap a minister has said this week. Okay, so RN Breakfast on the ABC tweeted this this morning. The Prime Minister has been accused of being out of touch after he couldn't name the price of bread and milk. His friend and colleague, Stuart Robert MP, says that if Scott Morrison's wife, Jen, was with him, she'd be able to, and I quote, rattle off. 
those prices. So now we have cabinet ministers who are using Jenny as a human shield, which has become something of a habit of the prime ministers, and it's interesting to see it spread out further. Jenny, of course, has a way of clarifying things, like after she had to explain to Scott Morrison why our prime minister, the head of our um, government, that uh, that rape was bad in the the wake of the Brittany Higgins allegations. It is it is just totally extraordinary because the thing is, it's one thing to be and Paul Keating famously didn't know the price of milk or something in a yeah. debate with John Howard. And when I've been trying to run macroeconomic reform, like, you know, and gave an answer like that. But if you're Scott Morrison and your entire image is based around, I'm a daggy dad, I'm such a daggy dad, yeah. here's me at the football, who's me drinking a beer, here's me cooking a curry at home. Well, how interesting that you're cooking a curry at home but you don't actually know the price of any of the ingredients, you know. And, and, like, that's, and that's really the hypocrisy, right? Like, and that's the issue. That, that, that he has pretended to be this everyman, but the reality is he's not. And I think it's the dishonesty of it that really strikes at the heart of, 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 the, of the question because he could have said, and it would be perfectly legitimate in my mind for a prime minister to say, I'm the prime minister of Australia. The reality is I'm, I'm not the person who does the shopping in my household and I don't have a daily grasp on the, on the cost of milk or bread. But what I do know is that I get treasury briefings about the cost of living, about inflation, about what's happening in the economy and how that impacts real people. And I also have real conversations with real people about those issues. So I can tell you that we need to put downward pressure on prices. I can tell you we need to lift wages. Like, he could have given that answer. Oh, but, you know, what's even more extraordinary is that this is a government that has militantly militantly defended keeping the rate of new starts so low. Yeah. That it was doubled during the big lockdown phase of coronavirus and people were actually getting ahead and putting their lives yeah. back together and then they, they snatched it away. Yeah. And they have just consistently defended insisting that people can live on $44 a day. Well, that doesn't really hold a lot of water if you don't actually know what groceries cost Yeah. because I've been on the dole and let me tell you what I had ate bread and I did drink milk and tea and beans and Vegemite and sometimes mince and sometimes apples might have a banana occasionally. Like yeah. you are counting every penny when you are on the doll because you have no choice. There is no daddy to look after you. There is no you're not inheriting a home from your parents and renting out rooms. That's not how that particular experience works. And I think so Hugh Remington, you know, who's yeah. an old school newsman. Yeah. Like he tweeted that today. He was just like if you're going to force Australians to live on $44 a day, how the hell do you not know what bread costs? And it then it then continued, right? Because Peter Van Onselen, who himself is now the subject of quite some serious questions about his own behaviour, uh, which I'm not going to we're not going to cover off here today because I think that we need to get some more information about And the matter will be before the courts. Yeah, absolutely. And in these issues, I'd just like to remind everybody, sometimes I get emails from people very emotional about 
um, allegations that yeah. get made going, why isn't the mainstream media covering this? And I just want to clarify, because if a matter is before the courts, that can be a reason why things are not reported and not spoken to, yeah. because otherwise you can have... You can jeopardise a jury. You can jeopardise a jury, and it is different in America. It's yeah. one of the many things that is different <laughs> between Australia and America, and sometimes if things aren't being reported, that is why. Yeah. So, look, we'd encourage you to check out the Guardian's reporting of that issue. Yes. Amanda Mead has written an excellent article about allegations that have been levelled against Peter Van Onselen, which we recommend that you read because Amanda does everything by the book. Absolutely. Absolutely. But his question at the press club yesterday was quite a bombshell, and it builds off this image issue that Morrison has because the, the question that Onslan had was that Gladys Berejiklian, former Premier of New South Wales and a Liberal Cabinet Minister. Present Cabinet Minister. In the Commonwealth Cabinet Minister as well. So mm-hmm. in Morrison's Cabinet was having text exchanges with each other where- Have you got the quotes? They called him a horrible, horrible person. That was Gladys. A, a total psycho. That was the cabinet minister. Uh, More interested in politics than in people. That was Gladys. Yep. And and basically that he couldn't be trusted. And he was a fraud. A fraud. And that was the cabinet minister. So someone who is in the government of this country with Scott Morrison, one of the people who would have participated in the vote to either make him or not make him yeah. prime minister of this country, believes he is a fraud and a psycho. And he just didn't have an answer to it. You could see it was almost like that scene in the He Simpsons. rejected the premise of the question. Well, basically he did. He just said, well, I obviously disagree with that characterisation and I'm not familiar with the um, context of what you're putting to me or who who said those things. Uh, it... it You could almost see his little tiny black heart breaking as he as he absorbed what was happening, and the mood in the room shifted. It had been flat; it fell through the floor. Because remember, the room is stacked with cabinet ministers and their staff. There is a good chance that the author of those particular comments was in the room. And if not the author, certainly somebody who knows the author. You know, these things don't tend to be... If you're having a communication with somebody in your faction or your party, chances are you've expressed that to more than one person in that same little group. And it's not like Gladys Berejiklian is in a tiny faction of the Liberal Party in New South Wales. There are more than one minister from that faction of the Liberal Party of New South Wales in the Commonwealth, there's a good chance they all have those little conversations. And let's remember, like, Peter Van Onselen didn't, wasn't, you know, like co-sharing the account with Gladys Berejiklian. That's right. Like, someone has shared that conversation with Peter Van Onselen. Like, you know, Benjamin, you and I aren't really in the habit of screen capping our our messages to one another or to our friends. Like, you only do that for a very specific targeted reason. So somebody who is in the, in the caucus, in the cabinet with Scott Morrison, a coalition colleague, is somebody is having that conversation with the Liberal former Premier of New South Wales and making a decision 
to share it. Absolutely. It's a, it's a disturbing, disturbing thing. And it, it really goes to the heart of whether you can trust him. And his whole pitch in this speech was about trust. Trust me to manage the economy. Trust me to manage the pandemic. Trust me to manage the government. And yet, clearly, his own cabinet colleagues... Somebody in his cabinet mistrusts him so much that they are leaking private communications in order to undermine him. It's a pretty remarkable state of affairs. Of course, the, the questions continued on because he, by this point, he had already said that he would stay and answer every question, right? So even though the ABC broadcast had ended, it was still on ABC News. And it was, you know, what should have been a sort of hour-long session became a 90-minute-plus session as journalist after journalist decided, hey, now's a good time to take paint. Samantha Maiden got up and asked a question about MPs claiming allowances. And and this is, this is where I want us to kind of move into talking about what he promised for aged care workers because Samantha Maiden asked the question, and, and the way she framed it, I thought, was really good, right? So Morrison gets up and announces that aged care workers can get up to $800 in two $400 retention bonuses, right? At the same time... One of which is theoretically the week of the election. No, no, the, theoretically the week he would call the election. Right. Right? So the very last week of April. And... Samantha Maiden makes the point that a sitting MP and many of the people in that room would actually get paid more allowance to stay in their own properties, homes they own in Canberra, than that $800 just for a single sitting week. And that in some cases, MPs have claimed upwards of $150,000 for allowances over the course of their time in Parliament. And basically said, how do you justify that and will you tell your MPs and senators to stop claiming it for staying in their own homes? Look, if you've got to stay in a hotel, you know, fair enough. In most jobs, if you've got to stay in a hotel, work pays for it. But the point is, these people own this property. This is an asset that they retain. And she makes made the point. In the Defence Force, you can't do that. In Commonwealth Public Service, you can't do that. There's a whole range of rules that stop people doing that. Will you tell your MPs to stop doing it? And Morrison just went, it's not my job. He basically, it's not my job. He basically just went, well, the people who make those rules are responsible for making those rules, and I'm sure that people are complying with the rules, and if they're not, then the people who make the rules will make sure that the rules are adhered to. It's like, mate, you're the Prime Minister, you're telling aged care workers they're such heroes that that they deserve, only deserve the same as an MP gets to stay in their own home for a week. But they're heroes. And they're heroes, but we don't pay them. We really appreciate them, but we're not actually going to structure any kind of pay rise. We're not going to advise fair work as the single, mm. you know, as the the wage determinator in this field, which the government are because they set the funding arrangements for aged care, they have the power to recommend to Fair Work an increase in the award, which they should do. Yeah. Because if anything has become very clear over the course of this dreadful pandemic is that these people are really important. You're absolutely right. And we've seen how 
when aged care systems start to fall down during the pandemic, people are actually dying. So this idea that simply paying people two $400 bonuses, which, by the way, you only get if you're full-time. Yeah, part-time. And we know that aged care is saturated with casualised and insecure labour as well. And the government has refused to put in a submission, like you've just said. In fact, Morrison dismissed the very idea at the press club yesterday when he was asked the question whether his government would would put in a submission supporting an increase, because in The Guardian has reported today, providers and unions have agreed that there should be an increase. And really, the Commission is waiting for a sign, a bit like the Therapeutic Goods Administration was waiting for a sign, from the government that they're prepared to support this. You know, and it's somewhat, you know, I don't know if the irony is probably not the right word. You, you, you'll, you'll probably know the right, right, right word for this, fam. But it's, it's synchronous, synchronous, perhaps, that 10 years ago, the community sector won its equal pay case when unions and the sector said, yes, wages are too low. And the government said, as the major funder of the sector, we agree that we need to increase funding for wages and the the ASU under the leadership of then Secretary Sally McManus in New South Wales, now of course Secretary of Unions Australia Australian Unions, uh has won the case and wages have gone up in that sector. Yeah, by an extraordinary amount. It's huge, isn't it? Yeah, it was like a fifty percent pay increase in the end across the sector. Yeah. Which was based on what they were worth and what their labour was worth. We undervalue care labour in this country by shocking amounts. The the people who have literally life and death jobs in care, not just in the aged care sector, but in early childhood education and in the disability sector are some of the worst paid people in the most insecure conditions within the economy. I'm sure it's just a coincidence that these are heavily female-dominated workforces, Ben. I'm sure that's just a coincidence. Well, I think I think it's also really telling, and it's a good time as any for us to tell people, now is the time to join your union. It's a really great time to join a union. Do you know why? Because it's always a great time to join a union. That's right. And you can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow to sign up right now. And, I mean, if you're in aged care or any of the caring sectors, healthcare, uh, disability support, whatever it might be, you know, you would be totally, totally bereft, I would think, if you weren't a member of the union at the moment. The, the, the sector itself, the aged care sector itself, has been really clear that these so-called retention bonuses are not going to solve the problem. I mean, one journalist in the press club yesterday literally called them how-to-vote checks. It, it, it's such a transparent attempt to placate a vast section of our community and actually not resolve the problem. No, they're just, you know, they're payoffs. It's like, you know, giving a, a, a person who's not getting enough nutrition from their diet a chocolate bar. And it's like that doesn't really solve the fundamental problem. Yeah. And in fact, I think the HSU uh, State Secretary in New South Wales uh, described it as giving trinkets to people who deserve diamonds. Uh, and I think the nurses described it as a sugar hit, uh, for, a sugar hit for a starving sector. Like it's it's not a it's not a solution to a systemic problem. And and frankly, 
you know, it's it's insulting. It also ignores the structural reality, right? Like a bit, it's a bit like the cost of bread and the cost of petrol question in that Morrison is so disconnected from the structural reality of these people's lives that he doesn't understand that promising full-time workers a bonus in a sector where the majority of workers are not full-time doesn't help the majority of workers in the workforce at all. It doesn't help them at all, really. No, it doesn't. It doesn't help them at all. Because these are structural problems that require structural solutions, and this is not a solution at all, not remotely. And the government has shown no preparedness to actually take on the policy responsibility of looking at how these sectors of care are organised and how they're remunerated and how people work. Like, it's it's just more of the walking away from the actual responsibility of government. And in a way, it was completely consistent with the speech that Morrison gave yesterday, which is terrible things happen, fires happen, floods happen, pandemics happen. But if you're not toughing it out, it's all your fault. That's yeah. really his attitude towards government. And it's like, that's... That's not why we have government, Scott. We have government to collectively solve structural problems that we can't solve on our own. And I think one of the things that struck me, you know, building on what you've just said, is that at the same time, he's more than happy to help out his mates and big corporations. And I give this example. So Qantas, and we've talked about Qantas before. You know, Qantas is trying to terminate its staff agreement for long-haul cabin crew. So about, uh, I think it's almost 3,000 people whose pay will be cut by up to 65%, right? They want to terminate the staff agreement, throw everyone back on a minimum conditions. All right, this is exactly what we saw at um, Streets Ice Cream were proposing something like this a couple of years ago. This is what led to the massive dispute at Carlton United Breweries. You know, all, all of these agreements where they just throw them out and then reduce to you know, throw out years and years and years of negotiating and basically give staff a like it or lump it ultimatum. Yeah. And and Qantas says it has to do this because of the complexity of rostering. And I gotta say, if you if you think rostering is too complex, I'm not sure you should be strapping people into a tin can that's full of jet fuel and shooting them into the sky at random intervals. Because if you can't roster staff, I don't know how you're rostering jet travel. I just find that extraordinary, given the fact that, like, booking flights, all of this is computerised now. I don't understand how the kind of database management that manages to book thousands and thousands and thousands of people across connections with, you know, taking into account... In different taxes, different jurisdictions, different laws, different arrival protocols. Time zones, languages. I'm genuinely confused how that can be done, but rostering is suddenly instantly more expensive. That's very curious. Well, it, Maybe they should speak to their own IT people. I feel like it's a, just a, a, an attempt to get around the fact that you know, previously they were found to have unlawfully gotten rid of people because they wanted to break the union. This is another section of the airline that is heavily unionised. And 
of course, the unions have said, well, the minister can step in here. This has got to go to the commission. The commission has to make a decision. And the minister making a statement to the commission to say, this is unnecessary. We don't believe the bargaining has been fully exhausted as yet. Uh, you know, don't, do not allow this to happen would, would hold a lot of weight. And of course, Morrison's minister, Michaela Cash, has literally refused it is a matter for the parties to resolve. Not interested in solving it. You know, it goes to your point, Van. It's really interesting because I remember gate crashing an appearance by Michaelia Cash um, with some scab truck drivers in Canberra a few years ago. Malcolm Turnbull was still was still Prime Minister at the time. And Michaelia Cash turned up at this very small demonstration of about 35 trucks in Canberra to tell um, these non-union truckers that she was going to help um, take down the road safety, road safety remuneration tri- tribunal so these guys could continue to truck for less money than they deserved and was very, like, actually proposed legislation in order to intervene in a dispute to ensure that people who do a dangerous job got paid less money. So I find it very interesting that this is a matter for the parties now and she's... Well, it's just remarkable, you know, and it goes to that ideology that you just that you just mentioned. And frankly, at the same time, Morrison's happy to give Qantas billions of our dollars, billions of our dollars. Uh, You would think that some of that money should go into protecting the jobs and the working conditions of the actual Australian workers who work at the company rather than just the executives who run it or run it into the ground. How much does Alan Joyce get paid? Millions of dollars. At one point, he was Australia's highest paid CEO. I don't think he is at the moment. Oh, Alan. Yeah. I think it, I think it's tough times for Alan at the moment. I think it's... Because I seem to remember he got $35 million one year. I think that's I think that's right. Yeah. I think yeah. that was $35 about, million. Dollars. In a single year. Mm. Yeah. Now, some of that was probably stock, you know. Yeah. Probably not all cash. And look, he's got a lot of expenses. Yeah. Costs a lot of money to be Alan Joyce, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the travel alone. Oh, no. <laughs> no, travel's probably free. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Would look- you spend $35 million a year on? <laughs> I don't know. I, you know. I- now, that's a guy who doesn't need to know the price of bread. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Probably, you know, $1,000. It's only one. It's only one bread. How much can it possibly cost? What's it from Arrested Development? Yeah, that's What is right. it, a banana? Yeah. What is it worth, $10? Yeah. I'm sure Alan Joyce has that conversation with his servants every day. I want to give a quick shout out as well, Van. We got contacted by some workers uh, who have, well, some representatives from some workers who are currently right now on strike at Sunrise. There are 300 workers on strike. Sunrise, and I did, did a bit of digging into this because Sunrise is claiming that they can't afford a proper pay rise and effectively proposing a real real wage cut for these workers uh, because they had a rough year. And look, they had a rough year last year, but this year's crop is 10 times last year's crop, 10 times. They've returned to 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week processing, uh, and they're telling the market that they're going to have three years of premium revenues. (laughs) Like, the, the duplicity of these sorts of corporations saying to the workers, times are tough, we can't afford to pay you, we have to cut your leave entitlements. This is the things they're saying. At the same time, telling investors and the stock market and suppliers, 
oh no, it's all good, things are going to be great, things are going great. Now, if times are tough, times are tough, but this is not a company in tough times, this is a company that's having a boom, and our solidarity goes out to the 300 workers who are currently on strike, demanding their fair share. Yeah, solidarity, guys, and thanks for getting in contact with us as well, because this is outrageous, like... And you just see it again and again and again is the double talk, the double speak. Double speak is yeah. the awful term where, yeah, it's out. They talk out of one side of their mouth to the workers and out of the other side of their mouth to the market, investors, shareholders and everybody else. And it's just like, who are these people? Like, who are these people who just truck in lies and exploitation? Yeah, it's awful, isn't it? It is. And just... At one point that, you know, being counter or human resource manager, at one point they were a student, they were a young person training to go into this profession. And I'm just like, how do you sleep at night? Whose life are you making better and for what? Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, thanks to the internet, it's very, very hard for them to continue to get away with that sort of thing. So our solidarity to the United Workers Union members at Sunrise on strike today, uh, and with all workers around the country who may be taking industrial action, do let us know, do get in contact. Van, it's time for the good news, and the good news is about... Bees. Bees. I love talking about bees. I'm so into bees. I'm totally pro bee. And in Britain, 250 of the 270 bee species, mm. obviously we know that there have been terrible problems with bees and declining bee. Declining bee populations, humanity, is a very bad sign. No bees, no food, right? Yeah, no bees, no food. So we got to do whatever we can to save the bees. And the solitary little buzzers, the 250 of the 270 species, uh, have had have faced um, habitat collapse because yep. of urbanisation and the rest of it. So the city of Brighton and Hove, which is one of my favourite parts of the UK, I have spent some very, very beautiful days in Brighton in particular, has mandated a bee brick policy in the construction of all buildings higher than five metres. Wow. So they make bee bricks, which are regular, well, they're, the the proportions of bricks mm. and they're very very strong, but they've sort of they've got sort of honeycomb holes for bees to nest in. It's fantastic. Yeah, so because they observed that bees were making homes in crumbling buildings, yeah, and were sort of infesting parts of buildings and things, and rather than go, oh, this is terrible, the bees are aggravating the decline of the building. They were like, hey, we can actually solve two problems. We can provide a home for bees as well as use structural materials that will perpetuate the building, um, which is amazing. And it's been successful. Yep. And they're now uh, working with the Royal Society for the Preservation of Birds, because they have one in England, um, from whom I've bought some lovely jewellery in the past. (laughs) And they're going to make swift bricks as well for the swift, which is, of course, a migratory bird that's been some time in Britain and some time in Africa, tiny little birds, and who had the same issues, that their habitat was collapsing because of urbanisation and the rest of it. And I just love things like this. Like it's looking at how – it's looking at coexistence. How can human beings have the things that we like, buildings, for example. Homes. Homes, shops, you know, the rest of it, uh, without killing the things like – birds and bees, that fundamentally is part of the ecology of the planet, keep us alive. That's right. So yoo-hoo to uh, Brighton and Hove, and it's mandated. Like, it's obligatory. It's like if you're building a building, 
you've got to create a space for the bees. This is fantastic news. I love stories like this. Literally, no bees, no food. And and if you're scratching your head going, why do they keep saying no bees, no food? I want you to Google that because it's absolutely real. Bees yeah. are an important part of, you know, the the, the growing of food in, on our planet. Yes. So, yeah, that's really great news. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it. I like <laughs> bees being alive. I feel better in a planet with bees. That's right. That's right. Um, and, of course, Van, as we now do at the end of every show, we want to acknowledge those listeners who have been able to and chosen to make a contribution to supporting the production and promotion of the week on Wednesday. And thank you to everybody who has been uh, helping us out. The thing with it, we do the week on Wednesday because we want to have a conversation about politics and about political issues that we didn't see was happening in the media yeah. um, or wasn't happening at the extent that we thought was appropriate, you know. Was needed. Needed. Appropriate, needed. Um, and obviously there are corners of that and we support the journalists who and commentators who do speak to that. But uh, the whole idea of the week on Wednesday is to have a broader conversation and have more policy ideas and ways of thinking on the table. And so th- your support means that we can advertise the show and get it in front of more ears and have a bigger conversation with more people. And we rely on you to share it and help us promote it because that's how we get the word out. Yep, and I have to say it's been hugely successful. January, despite the fact that we had the first week of January off, was our largest ever month for downloads in the history of the week on Wednesday, uh, and that's because of people listening, sharing, commenting, uh, and people making a contribution that has allowed us to come back with a bang and get the advertising out there and the promotion of the show out there to more and more people. So we want to acknowledge our cadre and our Extending the Reach uh, contributors. Uh, Van, will you do the honours? Sure. Our cadre are... Leona Gibbons, someone, Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, Leanne Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have a Twitter, my name is Susan, Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Cara and Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, Katagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, Narunga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins and Louise Watson, also known as Red, White, Blue, Lou. And our Extending the Reach contributors. Sandy Honan, at Gail Vest, Greg Mart, trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah and Kay Tui, Bo Sullivan, Elian and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Jennifer Berkeley, Andrew Bryan, Tamara James, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, Daniel Slavin, at The Real Neville Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, also known as at Not Sandy B, Melody Patterson, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, and Pauline Bate. As always, we read out the name you provide, so thank you to everyone for providing your name. Uh, All variations of it. <laughs> of course, do keep it clean, and thank you to everyone for doing that. That is the show for this week. It has been a huge week in Australian politics. The dog is still asleep. (laughs) He's such a cute little man. And we will, of course, start to focus in on elections. There are some by-elections coming up in New South Wales. There will be a state election in South Australia. And, of course, the federal election 
And if you have questions about anything to do with how politics works, there is no question too ridiculous. Um, somebody actually asked me the other day, how do I learn more about politics? And I was like, I guess it, I don't know. Like either you know or you don't know, and that seems ridiculous. So we're happy to be that service. If you have a question about how politics works in any way, elections, parties, pre-selections, anything, just hit us up. Just drop us a message. My DMs are open on Twitter. You can contact me there anytime or contact the Week on Wednesday accounts and we'll do our best to give you an answer. Absolutely right. Don't forget, you can also join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow. Uh, your union is always a good good way of finding out how you can get more involved in what's going on in your workplace and your community. Don't forget to check out our good friends on The Job, the podcast of the Australian Union Movement, which is uh, hosted by our good friend Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. Always interesting stories about what's going on in the workforce with them. Love you, Vanny. I love you too. Bye. Bye.